Hey, girlfriend, it's time for Can We Just Talk About This? Where real talk meets real life in the world of fitness and health during perimenopause. I'm nutrition, strength, and hormone coach Corey Jackson, and I'm chatting with my brilliant friend, coach and exercise physiologist Dr. Mandy Para. Whether you're in your 50s like me or your 30s like Mandy, we're here to navigate the ever-evolving journey of life, motherhood, and perimenopause together. So pull up a seat, get comfy, and let's talk about this. Hey, girlfriend. This is the second half of last week's conversation on how to read a scientific paper. In this half, Mandy and I talk about two different studies that analyze data and draw conclusions based on said data. The first looks at health insurance data collected from more than 50,000 women over a decade and asks if FDA-approved menopause hormone therapy has any effect on a woman's risk of all forms of dementia. The second study looked at health data from Denmark and asked the same question about MHT. Researchers in these studies asked the same question and drew different conclusions. So Mandy and I talked about what that means, how to understand the methods these studies used, and how to look at the results of each study in the broader context of our current understanding of the menopause transition. Now, you'll probably notice a little difference between how Mandy and I analyze and discuss these studies. We each bring different professional skill sets to the conversation, and our hope is that you learn something listening in that will make it easier for you to do two things. First, to interpret, understand, and apply health and medical research. And second, learn more about MHT specifically and its history with the goal of helping you make an informed decision for yourself. We talk about different types of MHT in a hopefully non-biased way, so you can better understand the ongoing debate. And finally, Mandy makes some really good recommendations for scientists in exercise physiology that make their work available for public consumption in digests. This is a great way for you to follow along. So you can subscribe to these digests and learn more about it. They're great resources to better help you make evidence-based decisions in your health and fitness. They, as well as links to the papers we discussed, are included in the show notes. Okay, okay, enough explanation. Let's just dive in, shall we? And that impacts our lives in a lot of ways. I think that these two papers that we want to talk about will show that. So we can first start with the paper that came out of University of Arizona. It was published in 2021. Let me pull that up real quick so I can read the name of the study. It is association between menopausal hormone therapy and risk of neurodegenerative diseases. Implications for precision hormone therapy. That right there, folks, is a mouthful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that is the title of the paper. And basically what this group of researchers in a lab did was they took data from an insurance company, namely Humana, for about a decade from the years 2007 to 2016. And they had a variety of 
age groups of women, a variety of ethnicities and different backgrounds. And I, I wrote down how many people were in this study. Uh, 379,352 people in the study population, evenly divided between groups. And the groups were um, those that were using hormone therapy and those that were not. And they basically compared which groups had developed more of a variety of forms of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. They also included um, multiple sclerosis and dementia as well. And so it was an interesting study. And the reason I wanted to bring it up was mainly because of the way it's been reported. But first, let's talk about the study itself. And Mandy, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about this so that we can understand a little bit more about the study itself. They said it is a retrospective analysis. And the quote is, retrospective analysis was performed using insurance claim records of women aged 45 years old or older in the Humana data set. What is a retrospective analysis? So retrospective is just where we take data that's already been collected and we look backwards at it. Mm, so mm -hmm. it's not something that we collect on the spot or in real time. A prospective study would be something that we are looking currently. We're looking ahead and we're making up a protocol and we are watching it as it happens. But a retrospective study is just looking at things that have happened in the past and analyzing them. So we're pulling a large data set and we're going to analyze it. Okay. Okay. So I remember talking to my husband about this and he is a data geek. He's in IT. He is an AI specialist. And I wouldn't go as far as to call him a data scientist because that's a completely different level <laughs> other than what he does. But the only reason I say that is I don't think he would call himself a data scientist. Data scientist to me is just like this overarching. You're in IT, you're a yeah. data scientist, right? <laughs> but I that's remember true. thinking I'm used to wet lab work and laptop work. And I didn't do a whole lot of data analysis. Like I said, statistics and I don't really get along. When I first looked at this study, I was like, this, this is all based on insurance data. How is this even scientific? How is it valid? And he had to say, whoa, <laughs> calm down, get off the ceiling. This is actually a, a validated model for looking at data that was collected for another reason and drawing conclusions from the data. That was a new piece of information for me. And I was really glad to see that because really when it comes down to it, there aren't enough wet labs in the world to be able to test all of this. Oh, yeah. Mm -mm. No, and it's nice to see what's happened because we know that this has a, a prediction model, right? It's a pre prediction mm -hmm. model. It's a model that um, tells us relative risk. So it mm -hmm. associates a risk factor um, with actual incidence of disease. And okay. so I think it's important to see that we are creating a mathematical model off of previously collected data to tell us what could happen in the future. And now what happens is we just sit back and wait and see if this predictive model pans out, which oftentimes it does. Yeah. And another thing I found interesting in this study is because it was a wide net, shall we say, of different women, different ages, a large population. It was ages 45 through 90, I think. They had lots of data for these different age groups. And so when you have that 
broad range of people, you have that broad range of history too. And so right smack dab in the middle of that age group, you have the women that are 70, between 70 and 80, that were hitting menopause during the era of, and I you could probably go back and say the ages of 65 through 80. These were the women that were hitting menopause or they were just barely postmenopausal right around the time of the Women's Health Initiative in the mm. early 2000s, which now is considered a flawed study. And um, there are lots of reasons that it was a flawed study. But part of it was because it looked at uh, women that were older, they were postmenopausal, and they were on synthetic forms of um, hormone replacement therapy. And a lot of them were already sick. They had what they call comorbidities. They were, there were women that were obese. There were women that were smokers. They, they had lots of different lifestyle factors that contributed to a disease load. We had heart attack risk. We had cancer risk. And when they saw cancer risk and they made a correlation between cancer risk and the uh, treatment, the drug treatment, they immediately decided that it was no longer safe to run this study and cut it off. And then the media went absolutely berserk. It was just the weirdest thing. I was working in supplements at the time. I was responsible for creating labels. So I was really deep in what is going into all of these supplements and how much it affects people. And although supplements were not um, regulated by the FDA and drugs were, it was interesting interesting to see the whole thing go down. Yeah. And at the same time, we also had a natural progesterone supplement, wild yam cream. So we sold that hand over fist <laughs> whenever suddenly HRT is no longer an option. <laughs> but at the same time, that, that study has gone on to be unvalidated. I don't think that's the right word, but it is no so longer. Okay. We'll take it. <laughs> Since that's no longer considered a valid study because of all of the different uh, confounding factors or the things that confused the data, women that are going into menopause now in my generation, the products that we use have learned from some of the problems and some of the mistakes that were found and uncovered by the Women's Health Initiative. And one of those things was that progestin or synthetic progesterone could have caused the cancer risk. Even when you go to a allopathic doctor, just your average OBGYN, not necessarily a functional medicine practitioner, most often you're going to get a progesterone, which is the product is Prometrium, as opposed to Prempro, which was the um, combination estrogen, progestin, what you're getting now is an oral prometrium. You take that orally and estrogen, which is applied topically or transdermally because they have discovered that this is a better route of administration and absorption. So those are the things that that I noticed from this study in particular, that there's like this continuum of experience. And the other thing that I thought was super cool about it is that age was a modifier to the, the, the results and the results, let's go ahead and spoil it. <laughs> Spoiler <Yes>. alert. <laughs> in this study, they showed that regular use of 
menopause hormone therapy was protective against Alzheimer's disease and all cause dementia or all forms of dementia. Interestingly, the PrimPro that I just talked about bagging on it was actually significantly protective against multiple sclerosis or the dementia that accompanies MS. I, I found that interesting. Um, but then also age was a modifier. So in ages 45 to 55, there wasn't that much risk. Therefore, there wasn't that much protection against Alzheimer's disease. So it's very rare to see a person in their 40s or 50s diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. But as we got older, as the age groups get older, and I'll probably include these graphs in the show notes because it's fascinating to me. As the groups got older, the line got higher. The effect was much more noticeable. Women that had been on menopause therapy for years in their 70s and their 80s had more of a protective effect against Alzheimer's disease versus the control group, which was those that didn't use menopause therapy. And those people were more often diagnosed with some form of dementia. So in my family, my husband's grandmother did have Alzheimer's. My family hasn't had a whole lot of risk of that, but it's also been a concern, especially with the brain fog that I've experienced and that my mother experienced. So I'm not ashamed to admit that I was a little scared when it came to the idea of um, losing my memory when I can't remember things from 10 years ago, <laughs> or even last week, that, that tends to be a concern. And so this was very comforting to me because I can read the study. Now, to talk about what that did in popular journalism, we've talked about how there are people on both sides when it comes to menopause. If you're paying attention at all, you know that menopause is enjoying a minute. There's more attention and that's good. There needs to be more attention. And so we're going to get right in there with it. But there is with that kind of attention, there's going to be opinions on both sides. And it feels like there's never going to be any subject where everyone comes into agreement, right? There's always going to be teams and silos. And that's so silly, but it's true. So there are people that say you shouldn't use menopause hormone therapy, but if you do, you should use just the very smallest amount necessary, the most minimum effective dose. And then there's the other side that says you absolutely should replace your hormones at the very beginning of perimenopause, which can be 35 in some cases. You should replace all of your hormones. And those people, I will say, and these are the people that I heard most of the positives about this study on, they were just clamoring, yes, see, we've been telling you, we told you, you should replace your hormones. And the reason that they were saying that this study supported that viewpoint was one little line that was buried in the discussion that said that the particular form of estrogen, 17 beta estradiol, was the most protective against any form of dementia, particularly Alzheimer's. And I found that interesting because specifically at the very beginning of this study, they said that they were reviewing all FDA-approved 
medications, all FDA approved menopause hormone therapy. Now it's real easy to get confused here when you start listening to people on both sides, particularly the pro hormones, replace your hormones people, because most of them are advocating for what we call bioidentical hormone therapy. And honestly, that's a red herring. Most of the prescribed forms of menopause hormone therapy now is bioidentical. That basically means that the molecule is exactly like the molecule that you produce endogenously or your body creates. That's not the synthetic. So that's when we're talking about prometrium versus progestin. And, and so that's where the difference is. And the thing that you need to be careful with is also advocated by this camp is compounded prescriptions or compounded products, which are not regulated. And most often compounding pharmacists do hold themselves to a very strict standard. And so most often you will be getting good stuff, but the fact is it's just not regulated and they are mixing it in their pharmacy. You're basically trusting that pharmacist to be exacting and scientific enough to mix it according to what your functional prescriber asked for. And so you got to be, you just you have to be careful. And I'm not telling anyone what to choose, but I'm just saying this is information that you need to be able to make a critical decision for yourself. Yes, that's really important. I think it's important that you say that and that you aren't ever sure where sometimes a compounding pharmacist is getting their drugs that they are compounding. So it's or even their training, even their education. Yeah. So all those things, yes, are important to consider and important to ask if that's the route that you choose to go. Really, really good analysis Absolutely. of all of that. That was good. Ooh, <laughs> thank you. Let's talk about the second one because I, I read both of them and how I'm not as well read in hormones and HRT as you are. I've had a few little red flags in this yeah. study as I was reading it. So I would love to hear your take on it. Okay. Okay. And I definitely want to hear your take on it as well. And the next study is called Menopausal Hormone Therapy and Dementia Nationwide Nested Case Control Study. And this study was approved for publication on May 16th, 2023. And it was, it was published in BMJ. And I, that is the same year I want to point out that the North American Menopause Society, at that time, that's what it was called. Now it is just the Menopause Society. They published their newest position statement stating that women should be able to take as much menopause hormone therapy that they need for as long as they need to feel good. And uh, this study specifically talks about in the introduction, I just wanted to pull this out because I think it's important. And the introduction, just to remind you, this is the long ago in a galaxy far away part. This is part of explaining the background of the area of study. And so you're talking about the different things that are in practice and have been discovered until this point. This particular study calls up information from the Women's Health Initiative, and then it goes on to say that contemporary standard recommendation for timing and duration of menopause hormonal therapy 
is used around the age of menopause, preferably for a maximum of five years. As such, target population around 50 to 55 years old. And the fun findings from the Women's Health Initiative memory study is less relevant, blah, 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 blah. They're basically contradicting the position statement of the Menopause Society, which I find interesting and important to point out. This is a what they called, and I want to ask you about this, Mandy, a nationwide nested case control study. What is that? A case control study I can tell you about because mm. reading the methods, I didn't see that it was nationwide. I don't know what the nested portion is. I could speculate, but I always think it's important as a scientist, as a researcher, especially as a college professor to say, mm -hmm. I don't know. So I try yeah. to make it a really good practice because I think it's important to say sometimes, I don't know, but <laughs> um, I, I'll tell you what I do know. Case controlled study is your recruiting or you're analyzing one for one. So okay. in this particular study, they have an individual that has uh, been diagnosed with dementia compared with, so the control, which is mm -hmm. an individual without dementia. Right. And so we want to put them one for one and analyze or retrospectively view them and okay. see what's happening with their hormone therapies and view them through that lens. Gotcha. So I'm not sure what the nested portion is. Were you able to see what the nested portion means in this? I'm not real sure. I pulled up this definition and this was um, published in a paper from the NIH that was describing a nested case control study. And this definition says, in the nested case control study, cases of a disease that occur in a defined cohort are identified and for each, a specified number of matched controls is selected from among those in the cohort who have not developed the disease by the time of the disease occurrence in the case. From what I can tell, in this paper, they had a total of 5,589 incident cases of all-cause dementia, and they compared that or matched it to 55,890 dementia-free controls. So that was 1 to 10 rather than the one-to-one -one that you just described. Yeah. So maybe nested means that they're using more than one. They're matching each to more than one. So there's a nest <laughs> holding them. I don't know. That's, I'm not, I'm the scientist still. I'm definitely not a professor. So I'm assuming, I'm going to make You're an assumption. Absolutely. <laughs> still. I do want to point out before we go further that that exact sentence that you read out loud Therapy is use around the age of menopause, preferably for a maximum of five years. Typically, mm -hmm. when you read a sentence like that, when someone says, and this is something that I harp, I have graduate students now that work under me. And so every time I see a sentence like that is a very defining statement, giving a recommendation, giving a strong case for something, I always say, hey, where'd you get that information? I need to know. And so that clues me in when someone makes a definitive statement like that, give me the resource. Right. So I'm going to look. So they have a citation at the end of that. Yes. I open it up and I go to that citation. I hear my <laughs> paper sprinkling. The big nerd that I am went to this study. And the study that they cited is approach to patient with menopausal symptoms. This is not scientific based researched evidence. It is Ooh. a recommendation from someone else. 
I think it's very important that we look at things like that in scientific research. And that's my ding dong, like, (laughs) that's awesome. And and so I think it's important to look at when someone cites something, let me just see what that person said. Sometimes you have to open that article and dig in it for a second to validate. But that's something that as a peer reviewer, I very often have to do. I have to read 12 studies to really make sure that individuals cited research properly and that they can, they can say what they said with confidence. And in this case, that is not an appropriate citation. Okay. That's good to know. That's good to know. And we can go on and talk about a few other things that we both have found problematic in this study. One of which I think we can agree is this is a nationwide study done in Denmark. And it's a pretty homogeneous population in Denmark. The demographics, according to the CIA of Denmark, as of the year 2023, is 85.6% Greenlandic, which is predominantly Inuit and Faroese, 1% (laughs) Turkish, and 13.3% other, which is... Polish, Syrian, Romanian, German, and Iraqi. Of this entire cohort, 85% of them, if we can extrapolate, were of the exact same heritage. And we can compare that to the previous study we just discussed. They had women of a variety of ethnic backgrounds, We had white women, we had black women, we had Asian women, we had other women of color from either South Asian or Mexican-American descent. There were a variety of ethnicities. And we know from science that, one, menopause impacts women from different groups differently. And two, Alzheimer's disease risk is different according to different ethnicities. I think that's a red flag, too, that this is a rather homogeneous study. Now, I also want to point out that this was also a data set analysis, just like the other one was. This is just from medical records. And the researchers also pointed out that they didn't feel like all of the Alzheimer's statistics were fully accurate and robust because many cases were not reported. Another red flag, I would think. What do you think about that? I think that's something that you probably can't control in a data set. Um, And part of a a retrospective study is, you know what? I can only control what's there. I can only look at what's there and report on what's there. So, yeah, I think that's something that you have to almost expect with Mm -hmm. with a data set like Mm -hmm. this. So it would seem that the bigger the data set with that kind of filter that you have to apply, the better. Yes? Yeah, I would think so. I think the bigger the data set, the better. You know, again, this is not my area mm-hmm. of study. I've read a few, but I would say doing like a meta-analysis type study, which is almost what this is, right? We do line of mm-hmm. um, old data and start to bring out trends in it. So yeah, a study like this, it's a huge set of data and you have to filter it down as much as possible to get cases that are as similar as possible. And another thing to think about is these two studies looked at disease very differently. So they categorized them in different spectrums. The first study that we discussed put all Alzheimer's and dementia into one bin, whereas Mm -hmm. this one neurodegenerative 
diseases and put them in a spectrum and a bucket mm-hmm. amongst mm-hmm. their very own. So it parsed okay. it out just a little bit differently. Okay. Okay. Another thing that I noticed from the study is they found that most of the population impacted by Alzheimer's were of lower education, of lower economic background and status, and lived alone, were obese, and had other comorbidities. And those they were matched to that didn't have the disease had more education. They were of more means. They had less disease incidents comorbid with Alzheimer's. One would, I think, be completely blind to not say that we really can't correlate this to menopause hormone therapy as much as we can any of these other things. As an exercise physiologist and nutritionist and yourself as well, you can go, of course not. (laughs) What we know about physical activity and nutritional status and even socioeconomic status, access to food, access to exercise and well-being and those things, we can absolutely say that probably it's not a one-to-one match if we're trying to match a control, then no. Exactly. And that last part of the different comorbidities, when they talked about these are patients that live alone, Mm -hmm. I wanted to point out that, I guess it was 10 years ago, it was a while back when scientists showed that loneliness has as much impact on our health as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. That's a big deal. We are meant to live in relationship and community. We're meant to work with other people. And if you don't, then that's going to have an impact on your mental state and your mental capacity and decisions that you make that could lead to other health outcomes. So just chew on that for a minute. (laughs) What else was interesting? What else um, jumped out at you in this study? I think we hit the big things that jumped out at me. I think just going over, you know, a brief um, overview. I did really like that in this Danish study that they looked at strengths and weaknesses in relation to other studies. So I like that they went ahead and put out there their own strengths and weaknesses. I think it's always really important to list those things. So I think that they are saying on their own, hey, we have some data here, but it doesn't agree with a lot of Mm -hmm. other data Mm -hmm. out there. Again, even if this is one of those times that we say, maybe we're not sure if what we got is 100% right. Right. We are saying that we got a result and we want to put it out there and maybe we can have the study replicated in 15 years. Maybe we can better match the controls um, and be able to get a similar outcome, or maybe we get a different one. So I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Now I didn't necessarily see this study reported in any kind of journalism. I haven't heard about it from another podcast or anything like that. And I can't say I listen to every single menopause podcast, but I listen to quite a few of them. And Mm -hmm. this one wasn't necessarily talked about a lot. And probably because because of all of the things that we have talked about, but also because it was negative. <laughs> and journalists are going to talk about the buzzy stuff. And there are going to be a lot of negative studies reported. But this is part of what I hear when I talk to people about nutrition, that in the 80s, we weren't supposed to eat. Uh, what was it in the 80s? We weren't supposed to eat. 
It fat, was it was fat in the eighties. It was fat in the eighties and fat in the nineties for sure. Mm-hmm. And then in the two thousands, oh, but you're not supposed to eat white flour and sugar and carbs. You should eat fat and lots of it. <laughs> yeah. And the reason that it's so confusing is because nutrition is notoriously difficult to study mm-hmm. because we're talking about free living individuals, and unless you close a large group of people up in a lab and feed them exactly what you want them to eat and control exactly what they're doing, then you're not really going to be able to get a good picture of what they're actually doing. Um, The only way that they can get this actual data is from recall. In other words, food logs, food diaries. And often it's just not the first thing on your mind to to record what you're eating while you're eating it. Even I have clients that this is of interest to them because their goals are directly related to it. They forget until they've eaten half of it to take a picture (laughs) or to log their macros. So it's not easy to really record this. And so that's why nutrition is so hard to really report on. And I would have to say that science in general is a moving target to report on. So you're going to see things that one decade something is reported and then the next decade the opposite is reported that's because there are advances in the ways to explore these things ways to test them and then there are advances in the way that it's reported because of the different ways to look at it and on all of the body of literature as well mm-hmm. now also this particular study menopausal hormone therapy and dementia in in denmark was appended in the bmj with an editorial that basically is headlined, a causal link remains unlikely. It was most likely completely ignored by journalism or by bloggers or podcasters, which I think it's safe to lump us all into journalism at this point. Mm -hmm. So it was probably ignored because scientists were already saying, yeah, don't, eh, yeah, I'm not sure about this one, guys. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> so you probably didn't hear much about it because of that. But I felt like it was really important to look at two different studies that were on opposite ends of the spectrum. Since we seem to have two camps, let's look at two camps here, right? And that also gave us a really comprehensive lens through which to look at the scientific method and the way science is done and the way science is reported. Um, Do you have any final comments or thoughts or remarks to leave us with? My, one of my biggest things is um, just be careful of who you listen to and be careful of how they interpret it. Anybody that says things straight out like carbs are bad for you because this study says so will straight out say definitive things, not a scientist. We don't say things that way. We say, We see a trend in the data towards carbohydrates impacting metabolism in an unfavorable Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. That is a Mm -hmm. more scientific statement because we don't know everything. A scientist will come come out out right and say, we don't really know everything about it, but what we're seeing is this. So I think it's important to to say that. And I also think that if you're into understanding or you want to learn how to better understand scientific literature, Find a scientist in the area that you're interested in and subscribe to some of their digests. I know several exercise physiologists who have weekly research digests where Mm. they will do videos or they will do written analysis of studies 
and they'll take them and help you read them and help you understand how to digest them and what they actually say so that you can use them for yourself. And Mm -hmm. that in itself is good practice. It has taken me 10 years of education and tons of research meetings in sitting down together and critically analyzing literature together and really breaking it apart and also getting my backside handed to me by another peer reviewer who just, they rip you to shreds as they should. That's what the scientific process is. Learning and and really honing my skills in looking at research. It's a skill. It takes time. And I would say if it's something that you're interested in, find something that you can subscribe to and, and get some better education around it. I love that. Do you have any that you would recommend in the area of exercise physiology? So for exercise physiology, Dr. Bill Campbell, I know does a really nice digest and breakdown. I can't remember what he calls his digest, but I know he does a great job of breaking it down. He's both nutrition and exercise science. He has a lab down in Florida. He does a lot of really cool body composition research and nutritional research. So he's a good one. And then Dr. Lane Norton, along those same lines, body composition. I was thinking about Lane. Yeah. Metabolism. Yeah. So he was my very first bodybuilding coach. Really? Yeah. We, we were in grad school together and he, that's where I oh, learned girl. everything. I've got so, all kinds of questions. Um, yeah, now. he's a, he's a really good <laughs> one. His breakdown, his research, the way that he, he discusses it. And I think his team does it for him now, but mm-hmm. another great resource and education around research. So I think his is called reps. Now I don't remember what it stands for, but something around research education. <laughs> so, yes. and that, um, that is a newsletter you can pres- subscribe to easily. Yes. And, and what, what else do you have? Um, so it was uh, the, just those two that I can think of Bill right Campbell off the top of my head. And Elaine Norton has okay. one and uh, Bill Campbell also has one. Okay, great. And I'm going to include those in the show notes for anyone that's interested in that. Lane is an acquired taste. I will just warn you now, ladies, because he's quite opinionated. <laughs> but, he is, but he for is, good reason. He is. He has earned the right to be. And he is. he's definitely a critical thinker. And he doesn't put up with information that is not critically thought through. (laughs) So I appreciate that in a person. I think that is the main stuff that we wanted to talk about. Oh, and also incidentally, Lane does have a very large social media following. And he's also one of the most honest out there. He'll admit when he's wrong. And and I appreciate that about anyone in science. And if you're going to follow anyone on Instagram and you want to look at their science on Instagram or TikTok or any of the outlets, then he's definitely one to follow. There you have it. We probably talked to death reading a scientific paper. And if you have any questions, I would love, love, love to hear them. You can email me directly, Corey at canwejusttalkaboutthis.com. I will filter those that I can't answer to the real genius of this show. Dr. Mandy Para, and she can help us answer those really well as well. <laughs> Just following your lead, my friend. That's all. Uh, it's as usual, a lovely chat. And I wish I had a cup of coffee to go with it, but my water has kept me hydrated and that's good. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to go ahead and sign off for today. Continue thriving ladies. Thanks so much for talking about it with me. I sure needed the time we spent together, and I hope it left you feeling good, too. If you enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe, and share it with your friends to bring other girlfriends into the circle. 
And hey, let's do it again next week. Episodes drop every Monday, and you might even find a quick chat Friday every now and then. 